Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals, brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this episode, Houston Business Journal Managing Editor Jonathan Adams profiles Latinos for Education, a nonprofit placing and connecting Latino leaders in the education sector. Our guest, Executive Director Andy Canales. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm very excited to be leading this work given uh, my own background and trajectory in education as uh, the first one in my family to both attend and graduate from college, son of Salvadoran immigrants, um, and as someone uh, who is a former teacher and has worked in education. Can you kind of go a little bit more into your background as in like when you grew up? Yeah, no. Um, so my parents immigrated from El Salvador in the 1980s, fleeing a brutal civil war that killed over 75,000 people there. And they came to Los Angeles. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, I grew up in the inner city, L.A. Uh, my mom was a housekeeper. My dad was a mechanic. And I attended some pretty challenging public schools growing up, particularly a middle school uh, that was actually later taken over by the state. But through the combination of hard work, support from teachers and mentors, uh, my parents as well, and some serendipity along the way, I was able to become the first one to both attend and graduate from college. And that is where my passion for education stems from. I was going to actually ask how how your experiences affected your career choices. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I feel really lucky. I feel really lucky. And I know a lot of people don't like that word. I think Oprah says that uh, luck is the combination of preparation and opportunity. But just to give you a little bit of sense of, of my experience and how it's inspired my career choices, I used to clean houses with my mom growing up in the wealthy parts of L.A., Beverly Hills, Bel Air, et cetera. And I was so taken aback by the contrast of those neighborhoods compared to where I was growing up in the inner city that my dream became to go to a school, college in a wealthy neighborhood. And I shared that with my college uh, high school counselor. There was one college counselor for 2,500 students. And fast forward, the summer before my senior year in high school, the uh, Pepperdine University contacted my college counselor and said, you can send one student to come study at Pepperdine for a leadership camp uh, during the summer. And so she thought, oh, I know exactly who to choose. I'll, I'll choose Andy because he's been talking about Pepperdine in Malibu and UCLA and in Bel Air. And I went, fell in love with the campus. I shook the chancellor's hand who hosted the program, went back to high school. I applied to Pepperdine and I didn't get in. And I said, I'm going to get into the school if it's the last thing I do. So I did what only a bold and fearless 17 year old would do. I called the chancellor's office and asked for a 30 minute meeting. I couldn't quite get a meeting. So I then just drove to Pepperdine and went to his office and managed to get a 30 minute meeting with the chancellor. And I sat in front of him and I said, listen, I, I participated in your program this summer. I used to clean houses in this neighborhood. I'm in love with this school. This is why Pepperdine is a good fit for me and why I'm a good fit for Pepperdine. And I said, I applied to Pepperdine and I didn't get in. I'm going to submit my application again. And I'd like to ask you to write me a letter of recommendation. And 
it, she, he chuckled and he actually did write me a letter of recommendation. I submitted my application again and I got in. And so I feel incredibly lucky. I know that I've worked hard, but if uh, Ms. Jackson hadn't, you know, chosen me to go to Pepperdine or if I wouldn't have been able to get that meeting, I don't know if I'd be here right now talking to you. I, I think there's an element of serendipity that just drives me to try to do more so that kids that are in the shoes I was once in don't have to depend on luck to be able to access an amazing education. How did you find the courage to do that? That's, that's quite brave to just go to the school and be like, I need a meeting with you right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I, uh, I don't even think my parents knew what I was doing at the time, but um, I was just so determined I was obsessed um, with the idea of going to college at a really wealthy neighborhood. And I think part of it was because I was exposed to a different reality growing up. Um, and that, that trek from the inner city LA uh, at five and six in the morning with my mom on the bus to Malibu during the summers I think just created such a deep impression in me that it just became something that I wanted to accomplish to be able to experience that even for just, just a little bit or to do something that would give me the opportunity to accomplish more than what my parents had done. So uh, tell me a little bit about Latinos for Education. I know you kind of dug into it a bit, but um, if we can go into a little deeper explanation. Yeah, um, I always like to start off by, by saying that since 2005 in Texas, there's been an increase of 800,000 Latino students. That's uh, almost an entire state uh, had moved into the state of Texas. Uh, so we have a sizable and rapidly growing Latino student demographic, not just across Houston, but all over the state of Texas. But we have a big challenge at hand, and that is that only 26% of Latino students are graduating college ready. So we know that there's a lot of solutions that we need to generate in education to help those students and to help our entire region be successful. And as part of that, we believe that meaningful representation matters and we need more Latinos to be involved. Uh, but less than 10% of leaders in the education sector are Latino. So that is what Latinos for Education is founded to address. We are an education nonprofit that develops places and connects Latino leaders in the education sector. We do that through two virtual, uh, well now virtual given COVID, but two leadership programs annually that train about 35 Latino leaders in Houston to either join boards of education nonprofits or to move into more senior roles in the education sector. And lastly, as part of having this name, Latinos for Education, we have a bit of a platform. So we are doing more to organize, elevate the Latino voice in Houston on issues that matter to Latino students and families. Is it specific to just Latino students or is it kind of like the minority students across Texas as well? We're focused on developing Latino leadership and, and advocating um, and lifting the needs for Latino students. But we know that you know, what's good for Latino students is in many times good for African-American students. Um, uh, Latino and Black students make up 80% of the students in the public educational system. And, you know, as a former teacher myself, I taught 
for four years and the majority of my students were African-American and many of the challenges and the needs that I observed uh, they were facing reminded me of my own challenges and the challenges that Latino students face as well. And so while we're focused on empowering the Latino community, one of our core values is bridging across cultures and, and ensuring that we're doing things that benefit all of our students. And so I feel like I kind of glazed over this when you first were talking, but um, can you kind of elaborate on your experience as being a teacher? Yeah. So I, um, I, you know, I joined a program called Teach for America uh, right after graduating from college and I was placed in Miami and that's where I taught sixth grade world geography. I then continued teaching in New York City uh, where I taught fifth and sixth grade world history as well. And, and that's where I earned my master's of science in education. And when I became a teacher, well, I had heard stories of people that had done Teach for America or had taught in low-income communities. And I had heard stories about how challenging that was. And when I joined Teach for America and was getting ready to go teach, I thought, oh, I'm not going to have these types of challenges because I grew up in the inner city. I know what it feels like to attend a school that is labeled uh, a, quote, failing school. Um, but nothing could be further from the truth. I, um, I mean, the things that I saw as a teacher in our public educational school system, there were many moments where I thought, this isn't the United States. I feel like I'm in the third world country. And what that experience did for me was view education from a completely different lens as an educator. And to this day, it inspires me and it guides my work for the things that I now advocate for. How would you say it guides you? So I think that um, whenever I analyze data about how students and school systems are performing, I always break down the data in lots of different ways uh, because I, for instance, know what it feels like to be an English language learner. And I taught students that came to this country um, not knowing any English and they struggled in my classroom and they struggled in school. And I think that we have to disaggregate the data to be able to understand the, the complexities of this challenge. I know that I saw as a teacher the, the nuances, the differences and the similarities between the Black community and the Latino community. So when I analyze data now and advocate for solutions, I keep that in mind. When I think about teachers and the way systems need to be improved or changed to better support teachers, I think about my own experience as a teacher, the professional development that I wish I had that I never received, um, the mentors that I wish I had that, that, um, that I know many teachers desire as well, uh, the curriculum that I remember teaching and the many problems with that. And now when I see that those debates playing out, so it goes on and on all the different things that as a teacher now inform my opinion and in some, in many ways, my advocacy. How did you get involved with Latinos for education in the first place? Well, the organization was founded five years ago uh, by five Latina leaders in education that were just tired of the lack of Latino representation in the education sector, and it started in Boston. 
Boston uh, public schools particularly has seen a rapid increase of its Latino student population. The organization was founded there about five years ago and then expanded to Houston just two years ago in 2018. And that is when I first started to become familiar with the organization as they were doing their landscape analysis. Um, ultimately, they decided to expand here and I threw my head in the ring for, for this position. So why would you say it's important for educational leaders to reflect the demographics of its students? Yeah, I, you know, I think that there's so much research that just shows how companies and organizations can benefit from having diverse teams. And I think that we know, you know, and I know from our own experiences, how much more uh, rich uh, solutions, conversations, ideas can be when you're at a table talking with people that come from very different backgrounds. Because we all view life and the many things that come with it through our own lens of experience. And so what, what we believe is that the solutions that we're generating in the education sector, whether that's at a nonprofit, whether that's at a school or at a school system, can those solutions can be even richer. They can be even more effective if they incorporate the perspectives of individuals that are able to relate, connect, and come from the communities that we're trying to serve. And especially at a place like Houston, 50% of the students across the greater Houston nine-county region are Latino. And so it's just really important to have people at the decision-making table that are able to raise issues around language barriers, about culturally sensitive and appropriate and effective ways of communicating with Spanish-speaking families, understand the nuances about the Latino community, which is very diverse and it is not monolithic at all. And so these are all perspectives that unless you have people that are able to connect with that identity, then uh, these solutions and these conversations are going to be missing that unless you have those Latino leaders present. So are you starting to see a change in the diversity of educational leadership, like within the area? Yeah, I I am proud of, of the work that we've done specifically in this area in just two years. We've we have developed or are developing, I think, close to 70 Latino leaders, nearly 20 that, that are from the private sector that we're training and connecting to be on boards of education nonprofits. And then the remaining 50 who are actually leaders that work in the education space. And, you know, when we open our programs, specifically the one that targets Latino education leaders, we usually aim that program for individuals with five to 13 years of work experience. And our thought process is that we want to cultivate up and coming and emerging Latino education leaders that are kind of at an inflection point in their careers. Uh, Meaning that with just some training, some support and mentorship, we can push them to accelerate in their careers so that we have more senior Latino leaders eventually. Um, And we usually have folks that apply with way more than 13 years of work experience. And I tell my team, make sure you let them know that they're a little bit above um, what we usually look for. But what people consistently tell us is, I don't care if I'm a part of this leadership program and most people are younger than me. I just have never had this opportunity 
in Houston to be a part of a leadership program that is exclusively focused on education and Latino leadership. And I want to be a part of it. And so what we see is that um, there's hunger for this type of leadership development among Latino education leaders. The development is effective and we're really excited about the progress we've made and, and how much more work we need to do over the, the years to come. What does that training look like? Yeah. So for the Latino board fellowship, we uh, recruit eight to 10 Latino leaders, private sector, and we train over six months on what the state of education looks like across Houston and in Texas and what effective board governance looks like. Fundraising, strategic planning, nonprofit management, uh, CEO management and valuation, um, board development, etc. And then we match them with boards that are looking to diversify. The second program that we run, the Aspiring Latino Leaders Fellowship, again, for up-and-coming Latino education leaders, uh, that is a nine-month program, and we meet with them monthly uh, for a whole day and focus on a whole set of skill sets that we think are really important for them to be able to move up in their careers and ultimately expand their sphere of influence in the education sector. So why would you say educational equity is important? You know, I think that this is a matter that is important to all Houstonians, to all Texans, and frankly, to everyone in our country. Education and particularly educational equity is important because if we are able to expand um, educational equity to all of our students, meaning Regardless of where you live and regardless of your zip code, you're able to attend a high quality uh, school and access a high quality education. Then our students, our present and our future generation are going to be more likely to succeed. And if they're going to be more likely to succeed, uh, then our society will will definitely benefit from that. I am concerned about the state of education uh, here in Houston and in Texas. Pre-COVID, we were already facing a challenge. Uh, barely About one in three students in Texas, in Houston, and uh, know how to read on grade level in third grade, which research says if you can't read on grade level in third grade, you're four times more likely to drop out of high school. If you're a poor third grader, and you can't read in third grade, you're 14 times more likely to drop out of high school. So that was pre-COVID. 26% Latino students graduating college ready, pre-COVID. Now during COVID, students have been physically out of school for around 200 days at this point. That's as if they, our kids have missed an entire school year. So educational equity, for the sake of our students, for the sake of the prosperity and well-being of our society, of our cities, our regions, and our states, is critically important, not just for those students and families, but for all of us. For sure. And I'm going to actually touch back on that here in a minute, but I kind of wanted to ask you what the misconceptions of Latino students is. Yeah, that's a great question. I think one misconception is is just kind of this perception of Latino students and the Latino community as a monolith. We have a lot of diversity in the Latino community. 
um, especially in a place like Texas. We have Latino students that are third, fourth, and fifth generation, perhaps, for instance, Mexican-American. We have Latino students that come from households where English is the primary language. We have Latino students that come from households where Spanish is the primary language. And with parents that perhaps just immigrated uh, recently to the United States. There are a lot of assets within our Latino identity and our Latino community that are often not harnessed. And that traces back to the way that we tell our stories and teach our history, uh, the way that our curriculum is set up. And so um, I think some of the misconceptions is that we're very similar, which yes, we have similarities, but we also have just as many differences given the uh, how distinct every Latin American country is and how distinct uh, the culture of each of those countries is. And then I think secondly is that there sometimes is a deficit-minded approach towards talking about Latino students when in reality there's so many assets that our culture and our identity offer that could be harnessed to, to educate our children. I was curious about that too because Latino students are similar but definitely come from different backgrounds and cultures. Um, how does that affect their education, would you say? Our Latino students, just like any students, navigate the public educational system through their family, right? And through the lens of their experience. And so for us, our identity is closely, like all of us, tied to our parents. And for many of our Latino students, um, their parents have just recently immigrated and maybe working two to three jobs. And so to kind of tie this point to the other point, the previous question that you asked, one misconception about Latino families is that they do not care as much as maybe uh, people would like them to. And that is because maybe they're not as involved or outspoken. And the fact is many parents do care but they're working two to three jobs. And so they may not have the ability to be able to participate civically in the, the way that they would want to. So uh, students, Latino students are navigating the public educational system through their families, many of which have just immigrated and are overburdened. Um, I think language is a huge issue, right? So you have Latino students that perhaps may only speak Spanish and very limited English, and that impacts how they access information about every single subject, math, social studies, reading, etc. Um, and so I would point to those two things. I think the barriers to parent involvement and the language barrier are two things that systems need to carefully plan around to help them be successful. And so kind of going back to your point earlier about students being out of school, how has that had an impact on Latino students? Oh, I, you know, it's going to have a great impact. There's research pre-COVID that shows that low-income students experience a summer slide every time they're out of school. Every year for about two months, they lose about three months of learning. So that uh, pre-COVID just kind of illustrates for you how much learning loss occurs every month when kids are out of school. Now, our kids have been out of school uh, for eight, nearly nine months at this point in person. And yes, many of them are learning remotely or virtually, but we know that's just not as effective 
And so what we expect is, is probably some sort of COVID-19 learning slide or uh, that, that is going to occur. We expect that students are going to lose a lot of learning. Another statistic that can give us some sort of an idea on this front is that there's research that shows that kids that lose 10% or more of school. So if they're attending a school year that is 180 days, right? If they lose 18 or more days, the research shows they're more likely to drop out of high school. Um, that's 18 days. Again, the kids have been out of school for eight to nine months. So we are um, very anxious, worried, and concerned about what's going to happen to all of our students, especially our most vulnerable students, African-American and Latino students. And I hope that what this inspires uh, for our country is a massive investment in prioritization uh, to ensure that uh, we do not lose an entire generation of kids. Andy Canales joining Houston Business Journal Managing Editor Jonathan Adams. In our next segment, Canales shares why the virtual classroom setting creates roadblocks for Latino learning. When Texas Business Minds continues. I'm Rich Gregasco, President and CEO of Texas Mutual Insurance Company. To everyone who has been hard at work providing the things we need during this crisis, we say thank you. You truly are essential and we're proud to be on the job with you. More at TexasMutual.com slash on the job. Continuing our conversation on Texas Business Minds as Latinos for Education Executive Director Andy Canales joins Houston Business Journal Managing Editor Jonathan Adams. What is the difference between in-person and virtual, would you say? You know, obviously in-person, you're physically attending school and virtual learning is where students are able to access some type of learning uh, whether synchronous, meaning live with a teacher, or asynchronous, a pre-recorded type of session by uh, a computer. And I think the difference in terms of quality is that teaching is about relationships. Relationships are really powerful in the classroom, like they are everywhere in life. Um, being a teacher, uh, you, you need to have people skills. You need to be able to connect and relate to your students in order for them to be even interested in, in consuming the information that you're trying to deliver to them. And that's really hard to do virtually over Zoom. It's really hard to build those relationships. And, and then it's even harder to try to deliver content. I do think that there is some sort of promise around what could be done better with virtual education, particularly with the older students. But I don't think we've, we've cracked that nut yet. And I think over the years to come, the way in which information and curriculum is delivered virtually will improve as a result of this experiment that teachers and students and that we're all in but we're just not quite there yet. So the, I don't think the quality and the effectiveness is there. Um, and, and so that, that'll be very interesting to see hopefully how that changes. Would you say there's a gap between the way lower income students learn virtually versus other students? 
Oh, absolutely. I think the, the gap starts with the fact that a lot of low-income students do not have access to Wi-Fi and they do not have access to a computer. I was talking to a friend uh, who's a teacher and uh, saw a picture of, of that friend's Zoom classroom and every square in that classroom, you could see the child at home. You know, there's some sort of background that shows they're at home. But for one of the students, you could see a blue sky in the background. And I asked about that student and, and that student did not have Wi-Fi at home. So every day in Houston, when it was 95 to 105 degrees outside, hot and humid, that student would walk with his chair and his laptop from his home to the school and sit under a tree outside of school to be able to catch the Wi-Fi signal to be able to log into the teacher's classroom and take that classroom from that point, which is why that background, his background was actually the blue sky and not his house. So the gap starts with access to technology. There's a lot of statistics that illustrate that. We did a study where we surveyed over 300 Spanish-speaking Latino low-income families, and they cited access to technology, particularly devices and Wi-Fi, as a key barrier for their children's learning during this time. How could that gap be closed? Well, I think we, we need leadership um, from the very top. Um, I am really glad about some of the things that the governor and the commissioner of education have done. There's a, an effort called Operation Connectivity, which pumped in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a little bit over $200 million to help school districts be able to purchase devices and hotspots for their students. I think that's a great start and a significant investment, but we need to go even further. I think that um, the state needs a broadband plan. I think that our cities and our school districts need coalitions to be able to compare strategies, best practices, and coordinate efforts. And I think that this is a space where philanthropy can, and nonprofit organizations can help support as well. So it's going to take a team effort. And there's a supply chain challenge as well in that everyone's ordering devices, given that we're all at home and the situation that we're in. So it, it's not going to be an overnight fix, but there are certainly good actions that have been started. And I hope that we can build on from those. So how has the pandemic uh, changed the way Latinos for Education approaches its mission? So we have been fortunate to continue all of our work. Instead of meeting in person, like, like a lot of us, we're meeting, meeting virtually. So we're holding our leadership classes virtually. And we've been able to continue our work, which I'm really thankful for. In some ways, we've expanded our work because we've tried to elevate the Latino voice during this time to ensure that Latinos are heard about how COVID-19 is impacting them and their children. And what we did from May through July of this year, 2020, is we convened and or surveyed over 400 Latino educators, school leaders, and multi-sector leaders to get their perspectives about how the Latino community is faring during this time. 
And I remember we held a convening in May with about 60 Latino multi-sector leaders, CEOs, board members, senior leaders, et cetera. And I think we held that convening with maybe two weeks notice. And um, I think one silver lining out of this terrible situation that we're in is that people have become more comfortable meeting over Zoom. And it's normalized that practice a bit because I think it would have been really hard in normal times to convene 60 Latino senior leaders in two weeks notice, but we were able to do it virtually over Zoom. And so fortunately, we've been able to continue work and in many ways expand our work. So what are some upcoming goals for the organization? Our goal is to train 150 Latino leaders to be at the forefront of education change in the first five years since founding in 2018. So we're going to continue to run our leadership programs to be able to meet that goal. Secondly, I am very interested in organizing and elevating the Latino voice, particularly around education here in Houston. I'm excited that after two years and essentially still being a startup, I'll be able to make my fourth hire uh, looking for a director of advocacy that can can help uh, take our work in that respect to the next level. And I think overall, just continue to shine a light on the many issues that are that are impacting the Latino community. Very simply, when people ask who are the Latino leaders in education in Houston, and when people ask what are the issues that are important to Latinos when it comes to education, and what are perspectives that they have to help us create solutions? I hope when people ask those three questions, they're able to point to Latinos for Education as an organization that is helping uh, organize Latino voices and perspectives around those three. Was uh, fundraising affected at all? Fundraising is always a tricky challenge, right, in the nonprofit sector. And fortunately, we've been able to move along with fundraising. It's taken some adapting, obviously. Um, I think the, the biggest challenge that I have, obviously, when it comes to fundraising into many aspects of my role as executive director, is just meeting with people and building relationships. As the leader of the organization, a core competency is building and maintaining relationships with a wide range of individuals. And often I'm able to do that simply by crossing paths at a restaurant, at an event, at a coffee shop, by having an impromptu meeting with someone, um, et cetera. And so I've had to adapt like many on my team and many in the sector to try to do that as much as possible virtually and we've been able to adapt, but I definitely look forward to the day where we're able to convene and meet in person. What strategies have you implemented to adapt to, to that change? Yeah, no, I think um, obviously meeting over Zoom, calling people, being able to tell our story in a variety of different formats, publishing blogs um, through our nonprofit partners, doing media interviews, being very active on social media. I think that social media was important. Uh, having a presence on social media was important before the pandemic, especially for someone in my type of role, but it's become even more important now, given that we're not crossing paths in person. So we've had to do 
all of the above, which we were already doing, but in many ways we've had to do more of it, become more comfortable and be more proactive in the way that we're telling our story. So you were also recently named a 40 under 40 for the HBJ. Uh, how does that feel? Yeah, uh, you know, that's a huge, huge honor. It's, it's very humbling for me to, to be recognized amongst uh, a group of people that I'm so impressed by and that, that I admire. And, uh, you know, this type of recognition just inspires me even more to do everything that I can to do my part uh, to help more Latino students and all students succeed because I'll tell you that growing up in a household where our income was about $20,000 a year, where, you know, I would go to sleep, you know, hearing gunshots outside. I grew up in a neighborhood where MS-13, the notorious Salvadoran gang originated um, going to school, particularly middle school, where I felt I didn't learn anything. I think going through all of those experiences, I would have never thought that I would one day receive that type of honor. So I feel humbled and I feel inspired that uh, to do my part so that more people, more children who are in the shoes I was once in get to experience that one day for themselves as well. Yeah. And I also understand you're a member of the American Leadership Forum. How would you say that's changed the way you view leadership? Yeah, I am a member of the American Leadership Forum, ALF. I've done a lot of leadership programs over the years, um, fellowships and programs and trainings, and I obviously run two leadership programs myself. And this is probably my favorite leadership program that, that I've ever done. As part of the leadership program, we traveled to Colorado, uh, to the mountains where we dis disconnected from technology. I uh, spent time about five days uh, with other leaders across the city of Houston that are making a lot of impact um, and making a difference in our community. And I think the ability to be able to break bread, to build relationships and to create memorable moments while hiking while exploring nature or helping one another get to the top of a mountain. It's just something that I'll never forget. And uh, I think the way that it's impacted my leadership, it's really um, cemented in me just the importance and the power of building relationships, of sympathizing, of empathizing, and of harnessing all of those things to ensure that I am designing and creating and driving solutions in my sector that begin with all of those things that, that I really became conscious about through that program. Thanks to Latinos for Education Executive Director Andy Canales for joining us. And thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas.